You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. invite you to open your Bibles back to the prophet Haggai as we wind up our study through this little prophecy. Before we uh, look at these final few verses, let's commit our time to our Lord and ask his blessing on our study this morning. Father, we do know it's a privilege, and it's by your grace that we are even able to be here today to gather together to study your word. And we pray that you would accomplish every divine purpose that you have for us here today by your Spirit, through your Word. And we just thank you for all you're doing in our lives, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time, week number three, we looked at God's promise of future blessing that was in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, and uh, we saw the problem, which was unclean worship on the part of the Israelites who had returned to Judah. And then we saw the promise of undeserved blessing in the, at the very end of chapter 2, verse 19. So were there any questions or thoughts you had on what we looked at last time? Okay, how about page 10? How about some questions? We saw that holiness is not communicable, but uncleanness or defilement is. How can this principle be applied in our spiritual lives? Any thoughts on that? Probably more ways than uh, any of us could enumerate. And I only gave you two lines there, so certainly there's lots of principles here. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Okay, number two. All The above principles are applied by Yahweh to his people. Can you identify defiled or unholy worship or doctrine in the broader church? We might call it Big Eva. Care to name names? Paul did. In 1 Timothy 1.20, and that should say 2 Timothy 2.17 there in your notes because 1 Timothy 2 only has 15 verses, so if you chase that around this week, I'm sorry. Should have been 2 Timothy 2.17. Can you identify defiled or unholy worship in the broader church of our day? And again, I only gave you two lines, and I know I restricted your... Okay? 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul says, Hymenaeus and Alexander... He named names. You're also shy. You don't want to, you don't want to go on the record. I understand. But we are swimming in an ocean of apostasy nowadays, are we not? And yeah, that would definitely be a, an example of unholy worship. The above principles of holiness is not communicable, but uncleanness or defilement is, are applied by Yahweh to his people in chapter two. You remember he said, um, after those two questions to the priest, Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. And we went back to Ezra and we saw that the first thing they did when they got back into Judah was not rebuild the temple, which is why they came back and why Cyrus sent them back. But they got busy making the sacrificial system again. And um, we were basically noted that it, it was, they got busy with external religious ritual and neglected the internal spiritual reality 
that should have been there. That's kind of the basic dichotomy. Um, and there was nothing wrong with what they did. This was prescribed by law. But they neglected the best for that which was merely good. You can see that all through contemporary evangelical uh, churches, ministries, much of what they do. Very good. All of that stuff is good. But if you neglect the priorities of the Word of God, the proclamation of the Word of God, as we are commanded to do, preach the Word, Paul told Timothy. That's a, that's a forceful command. Um, and to teach sound doctrine in churches. If you neglect that for more, as many would say, practical things, all good things. Maybe they have food banks, maybe they have help ministries, and usually those churches have all these different ministries set up. They call them target ministries because when somebody comes in the church, they can immediately plug them in, and they get them busy doing things, and yet you can go to a church like that for months or even years and not hear anything concerning your internal spiritual condition. Okay, And I think that's what... Yeah. And... and that would just be the starting point. Yeah, he's just, uh, and it was Romans 15. 16, Romans 15, 16, verses 17 and 18. The idea that the command by Paul to note factious or divisive people in the church, and the reason is they are leading the people astray with false doctrine and that type of thing. And, and that's exactly what, um, what, what, God through Haggai is rebuking the returned Israelites for. Um, no matter what they did, it was, it was tainted with the sin of disobedience. Okay. And, um, my point here in saying care to name names, I don't have a list. I mean, only what I kind of see and observe like you, but Paul did name names and he specified like Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. But then what did he do? He didn't say, and I'm going to get a baseball bat, and of course, he didn't have baseball back then, but he didn't take the vengeance on himself. He named him, and he urged Timothy, who was pastoring churches or working with churches, avoid such a one, and then he let it go at that. He he turned them over to God, but he still named them, and he pointed out what they were doing wrong, much like he did in, in Romans there, okay? I think that's an important principle. Um there's not just a doctrinal issue here, there's also a pastoral issue. And all sound doctrine is also pastoral, is it not? Okay, number three. If the Jewish exiles responded to Haggai's first oracle favorably, and they did, returned to work on the temple and enjoyed the presence of Yahweh, how was it that they still had to endure the chastening of God for past sins? Can you state a principle based on Scripture that expresses this truth? Consequences for sin? Okay, so a full statement might be obedience may not, obedience today may not guarantee uh, that there will not be consequences for past sin. Anybody else have a thought on that? My, I kept, kept thinking of the thief on the cross. He was justly condemned and nailed to that cross for being a thief, right? And yet he came to Christ before he died. The other thief didn't, but he did. And we know that because Christ said, you will be with me this day in paradise. And yet he still died the death of a thief hanging on that cross. Um, 
And so that's just one example, and you can certainly think of more. In his grace and in his providence, God may um, mitigate the, the, the effects of a lifestyle lived that might have been uh, detrimental in some way, shape, or form physically, and that person comes to Christ. But they may not be fully healed of everything, right? We know that. Um, but that would be in the providential working of God as to whether or not he does that. So obedience now may not stop the consequences for past sin. It guarantees salvation, but it does not guarantee other things that are oftentimes promised by some of the false teachers that we were just talking about up in 2 and 3. Well, then number four, how is the sovereignty of God seen in the details of how he deals with the Jews? It gets down kind of granular, right? Down as to how much food do you have or how much grain do you have in that pile of grain? So can you think of any other ways the sovereignty of God is seen in how he dealt with the, the Jews or with anybody? He is sovereign, of course, and um, that was one of the lessons they had to learn that um, even the weather patterns are controlled by God. The weather, weather patterns that control how much crops they have and how much food they, they eat. And then number five, the promise of Yahweh in 19b is an example of his pure... He says, I will, from this day on, I will bless you. When God blesses us, is that a, a trophy for us, a pat on the back? That's pure what? Grace. That's what we're looking for there. And his faithfulness and his power to accomplish what he has promised he will do. Well, then, um, I think you mentioned First Samuel here, here at the bottom. This is directed to Saul, maybe one of the more famous verses from, well-known verses from First Samuel. But this is, this really captures it. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is a great passage if someone says, well, I'm just disobeying, it's not a big deal. Well, rebellion is as a sin of divination. Uh, I mean, something that you think might be something good that you're doing, but you're actually in rebellion against God, God calls it divination because of your disobedience. Okay, that was week three. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Mike. Witchcraft. Witchcraft. I think that's pretty a pretty good, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, yeah. I mean, divination might be a little, uh, might be a little more of a, a polite, a little politer. Sometimes we we run across polite translations, you know. But yeah, divination or it's witchcraft. It's like that. It doesn't say it is that. It's a simile. It says it's like that, and it's and it's how bad it is. Okay. Well, now let's turn to page eleven in your notes, and we're into the last oracle of Haggai. God's promise to Zerubbabel. This is verses 20 and 23. And I'm just going to read through it since it's only four verses. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. 
I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I wanted to, before we look at these four verses, since it's a fairly short section, to uh, talk a little bit about this chart here. I, I don't know if you have it with you, but um, possible time chart. And it's possible. I want to reiterate, just possible, okay? This was not designed to be definitive, but simply to try to put down on paper what I thought was uh, something that we could see. And really, we're talking about hermeneutics here. We're talking a little bit about how do you interpret the Word of God. And when you run across passages like this, oftentimes you will find people that will take this a date like this 70-year date that we see here. And um, and I did run across that in some of my some of my reading and studying. And a whole lot of other commentators are commentating on the people that do not take this as actually 70 years. They can't quite reconcile the dates with a starting date and a stop date. And so they simply say, well, you can't take that literally. You, you have to take that um, in a non-literal way. It doesn't really mean 70 years. It means something other than 70 years. Well, the problem with that is they don't tell you, well, it means 72 years and then prove it from Scripture. Or they don't say it means 68 and then prove that from Scripture. They simply, I'm going to just call it a cop-out and say it's indefinite. It's indefinite. Well, what do you do with that, right? And um, I don't think that's that's uh, adequate for a way to deal with the Word of God. Numbers are words. Numbers are words. And these words are God's words. And all of God's words are God-breathed and profitable, we know from the New Testament. And so are these. And so not only that, numbers are generally in a place in the in the Scriptures where they modify other words, 70 years uh, three days and three nights, our Lord said, or the, the, the famous thousand years from Revelation chapter 20. And when those words are in syntactic relationship like that, you have to, to, you have to understand them in relationship that they are in the sentence as God has put them there that way. Okay. In other words, if you say 70 years doesn't mean 70 years, well, maybe years doesn't mean years. Maybe it's 70, uh, orange orchards or something. Now those folks would say, what are you talking about? How can you say that? Well, if it's an indefinite number, or if it's indefinite, maybe uh, it's an indefinite number of um, vineyards. They would say to me, what are you talking about? Look at the text. What does the text say? And I'm going to say, no, no, we've already moved way beyond going by what the text says. According to you, it's not, we don't take it for what it says, okay? So you see you have a real problem interpretively there, uh, with their consistency and trying to uh, understand what they say. So um, I ran across an article. It's it's on the bottom of page three there. It's uh, Dr. Talbert. He was basically dealing with the same thing. You know, is 70 really 70? And uh, so I read through his article, and and uh, he basically approached it from a couple of ways in his understanding of it. And um, I think he he's, he's right on with it. Basically, if you can't fit the timing together... One of the things may be you're starting at a different point in time and then ending at a different point in time. If you start with 586 
and then end it the night uh, of the handwriting on the wall when the Babylonian Empire came to an end in 539. You get about 47 years, okay? And so basically, he walked through these, these various aspects of the 70 years. And also, remember that, that the Jews don't reckon time exactly like we do. Any part of a day is considered a day, and any part of a year is considered a year. So there's, there's a difference there as well. So I, I just wanted to, for the sake of uh, seeing if I could sort of illustrate it, chart it, and certainly you can see that the 70 years can easily fit into um, the information we have in Scripture. You can take it for what it says, okay? And um, I just wanted to point out, I didn't know if anybody had uh, worked through this timeline on, uh, on page two, but remember in Haggai at the end of... Um, in that last section we looked at, he, he specifically notes the date at the end of 19. From this day on, I will bless you. And so this writer, uh, Mr. J. Sidlow Baxter, back in 1960, he figured this all out from that date, calculated it all out, and he calculated it out down to the day, he says here. So um, I haven't personally worked through that, but I thought that, that should be included in the mix here. And uh, if you're really good with the computer or calculator, you can work that out. What I did want to look at real quick, though, was if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. We're going to get back to Haggai here, but uh, Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah is prophesying. He's banging away at the, at the nation of Judah. He prophesies their sin. He pre- predicts their, their captivity, and he also predicts their return. But in Jeremiah 25... This is 605 B.C. We know that because it's the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he gives this condemnation of their sin in part. But when you get down to verse 9, he says, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against the land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstone and the light of the lamp. And then verse 11, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. That's a prophecy of Daniel chapter 5 and that night that he is going to punish that nation. Now, if you look at Jeremiah 29, mentioned to one of the fellows earlier that I have spent more time in Jeremiah in the study of Haggai than I have in Haggai, but it's, it's background and I think it's very helpful. So in chapter 29, now we're up to 597 B.C. And here's what I find absolutely fascinating. Verse 1 of 29, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. Remember, there had been a series of deportations up to Babylon, 900 plus miles away. Two of the people that were there were the prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel. They're up there. So a letter is written to the priest, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem 
to Babylon. And he, he just talks about how the letter got there. So they're getting the prophecy of Jeremiah up there in Babylon. Now look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for, and it could also be at Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And here's that famous uh, t-shirt. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Okay? Got that? Now, let's look at Daniel chapter 5. Daniel's up in Babylon. He's been there since at least 605. And when you look at Daniel 5, or Daniel chapter 5, you're 70 years ahead, all the way to 539. Okay, so Daniel chapter 5. It's the famous passage of the feast, the pagan feast, where they're using the chalices of the temple of Jerusalem to get drunk and to have their pagan orgy feast. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So this is all going on. And the handwriting on the wall occurs. Now look at verse 26. They call Daniel to interpret it because their own uh, magicians can't figure it out. Look what he says. Now Daniel, remember, he, he received the letter, and he understands the prophecy from Jeremiah. But here's, here's what the handwriting on the wall says. Verse 26 of chapter 5. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and been found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided, given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, okay, God's timing is precise, and he knows what he's talking about when he, when he tells people these things. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. That very night, the entire city of Babylon went down in one night, which is incredibly unusual because, as we mentioned, I think, last time, the way they did it was they stopped up the Euphrates River, which ran underneath a big gate through the town, and when that river dropped down, they just swarmed up the middle of that river, and they were right in town. They took that city from the inside out in one night, just like that. What did God say? You've been numbered, your days are numbered, and this is it. It's over. That's in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. But here's also what's interesting. Now look at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we also have a time stamp that tells you this is exactly that same year. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, 
must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So when it comes to interpretation, we get our rules of interpretation from Scripture. Scripture comes with its own rules of interpretation, and one of them is how did the prophets interpret the Word of God? Be a good example for us to follow, whether we want to take it literally or not. You can add to that. We won't do that today, but how did the apostles interpret it? How did Jesus interpret the Old Testament? And so on. The Bible comes with its own rules of interpretation. It's not for us to try to figure out what, what our interpretation is going to be and then and impose it upon it. So, But how did Daniel interpret Jeremiah's prophecy that was sent to him by letter that he is reading? Very literally, right? And he recognized it for what it is. According to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, going back to uh, chapter 29 of Jeremiah, you remember what else it said? What's going to happen right when Babylon falls? Part of the T-shirt uh, thing? What's, what, are the, what are you going to do? Pray. It said you will pray. It's the very next thing Daniel does. He knows we're going back. We're going back to Jerusalem. Seventy years are over. Babylon has been destroyed. We're going to head back, but we're not ready to go back. We're not ready to go back and resume the worship of Yahweh yet. Then I turned my face to the Lord, God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed, and then what follows is this long, beautiful prayer of repentance for the, on the part of the people. And um, there you have not only the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, but you also have a picture of the sovereignty of God who calls him back, who tells him he's going to do that, but you also have the responsibility of man to pray, right? He just read in the prophecy, we're going back, but he doesn't say, get packed up, let's go. He still prays and calls his people to repentance. So there's much more we could do with that. Um, there's lots of parts and pieces to this puzzle, but I think that's probably enough for now. Do you have any thoughts or uh, comments on that? Indefinite. It's an indefinite period of time. That kind of thing. That's that's probably the most common. It does not fit their theology. They have a presupposed theological system that they are using as a hermeneutic, and nothing gets through it but their system. Instead of exegeting the text and and adjusting their theology, they have a pre-existing theology, and they impose it on the text. That's that's how it, that's how it happens. They're they're good people. They're smart people. They're not stupid. They're highly educated, very smart people, but they have a pre-existing system. And when you do that, and you can do that with any system. Anybody can do that. You have to be very careful. And you have to let each text make its contribution to your, your system. You're done talking with them then. I would be. I mean, once you get, once, once you get to there, yeah, you can talk about, uh, think those cowboys will get another coach? I don't know. Maybe they will. Because you, you really, you know, you, you bump up against that and it's, you know, where do you go? You don't, you know. Okay. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Interpretation is very, very important. It's critical. It's going to determine everything you think about the Word of God. It really will. Well, let's, let's spend the rest of our time looking at these last several verses in Haggai that I just read through. The first thing, once again, we're going to see the promise of judgment. <clears throat> The word of Yahweh came to Haggai a second time, and very interestingly, it's the second time on that on the same day. So there's four oracles, and the last two are both given on the same day, as in same as in verse 10. 
But this time, <clears throat> in comparison to the other three, it's very narrowly directed to Zerubbabel. Okay? This is, this is really important to see. In all of the vast movement of nations and warfare and temples up and down in the whole nine yards, there's something very important going on here. And that is God is, is preserving and protecting the seed line of the messianic seed line, the Davidic line, as he promised in the Abrahamic covenant, that there would be a seed line. And so what he says is directed directly to Zerubbabel alone, which indicates that this message is a messianic or a royal prediction. Your two blanks there, alone, and it is a royal prediction. <clears throat> Pardon me. Right. It's messianic. It, 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 Zerubbabel is important, but he's the governor. He's the civil governor. And, and in that regard, he's somewhat of a picture of Christ, but he is certainly not messianic in any way other than he's in the sea line, as we're going to see. And then, like verse 6, future universal divine judgment is pictured here. This, this is reminiscent of what he said before. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Universal divine judgment with that massive earthquake that's going to take place. Revelation 16, 18 you, you find the bold judgments being poured out on the earth. And it says that a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. Earthquakes happen now. They happen all the time. Some of them extremely severe and damaging and take a lot of life. But when that happens, it's going to be absolutely cataclysmic. That's what he's talking about. So we're looking into the future here. This is eschatological from from uh, from Zerubbabel's perspective, and it's also from our perspective as well. This has not happened yet, so it is in the future. It will also include, it will be universal divine judgment, and it will include the overthrow of the throne. This is singular in Hebrew. Some of your translations may have plural, the thrones of kingdoms. It's actually singular. And it may be, I don't think I would arm wrestle anybody over this, but it may be a reference to a single throne in control of multiple kingdoms, okay? which very well could happen in the future. Remember when uh, Satan tempted Christ, one of the things he tempted him with was, I'll give you all the kingdoms. Now, it could have been lying, but we also know that Satan is the god of this evil age. He's the prince of the power of the air, and so on. Also, Revelation 16.10 might be a reference to look at as well. But he's going to overthrow these kingdoms, and these kingdoms are apparently Gentile kingdoms. There will be a cataclysmic judgment, including the earthquake, and so on. And then we have the promise of Messiah. This is where it all culminates. This is really where it all points. 2.23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shaltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. He will make you like a signet ring because what he's doing is he's looking at Zerubbabel. He's actually looking at the entire line of people. This is 
pretty common in, in, in Hebrew thought and the way they saw things. You know, they could, they could look at a man and when you looked at that man, you could, uh, talk about his, his, his generations were in his loins, so to speak, you know. Abraham is spoken of that way. So this is a look into the future. Zerubbabel is his, his servant and he's also been chosen by God to be a part of this seed line. The signet ring was the symbol of divine election and authority. It was even used to by uh, by kings and people to transact business. It could be worn on the hand. It could also be worn around the neck on a on a string. The fourth and final oracle prophesies the future judgment and destruction of the Gentile nations that even in Haggai's day were occupying the land. And the signet ring is the symbol of divine election and authority. It had been removed from Zerubbabel's grandfather Jehoiachin, in other words, his right to be any kind of a ruler, because of his sin and perverse leadership of God's people. Let's go back to Jeremiah 22.24. And we're going to see this, this curse. We talked before about how there was all these kings ruling, and most of them were, were wicked, they were evil. They rebelled against God. They led God's people away from God through idolatry and so on. But in Jeremiah 22, starting in verse 24, we have God's condemnation of this man named Coniah. He started out being, you can see him named as Jehoiachin or even as Jeconiah. But in verse 24 of Jeremiah 22, it says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And that's exactly what happened. And notice he went from being Yehoiakin or Yehoniah to just simply Coniah. Names are important in the Bible. God took his name off the front end of his name. Yahweh was no longer part of his name because he was now going to be condemned. He's under a curse. And not only him, but his entire progeny. Here's where it gets very interesting. Look at verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Well, that creates a problem because this man is in the seed line of Messiah. So how in the world is his descendant going to be qualified to be the king of Israel, Messiah, when he's under a curse? All of his descendants will be. Well, this curse that God made, and of course he knows what he's doing, several centuries before the birth of Christ, this this curse guarantees that none of these men would ever be able to usurp the throne, right? Because they're not qualified, and everybody would know it from this. It also guarantees the virgin conception of Jesus Christ, okay? And um, it's absolutely fascinating to me because it looks like the seed line is finished, except it's not, because God has it all in control. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1. We can see how this comes into play centuries later. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew opens up the New Testament by saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. And what does he do? He looks back in time, and he just really is kind of a connect the dots. He knows Christ. He, he witnessed personally. He's one of the disciples, one of the apostles. He saw his ministry. He saw his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And now he's writing his gospel account. And he, he, first thing he does, he wants to connect him to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And he does this by saying he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he starts with Abraham and he walks right down through the genealogy. <clears throat> now there's another curse early on in the genealogy. We won't talk about it, but the, um, the, the, the previous curse up in verse three started on Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar. And if you want to do a little research on that, that's Deuteronomy 23.2 is the law that says a child of an illicit relationship is not qualified to enter the sanctuary of God until the 10th generation. So you can go ahead and do the count yourself from Perez all the way down to verse 6, and it says David the king, and David is number 10 in that part of the genealogy. But then it says all of this... People are in, in the line from Abraham all the way down to Christ are named, and it repeatedly says, the father of, the father of, the father of. And we get down to verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, there he is, or Coniah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. There's our guy. Coniah was his grandfather. And so from Coniah on down, every single one of these people is under a curse. And then it goes on down from Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and so on, the father of, the father of. Then you get to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, but notice what's not there. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ doesn't say he's the father of Jesus. Jesus was virgin conceived and therefore virgin born. And yet, he, yet Joseph was his father. He was in the family, so he had legal title to the throne, but he did not inherit the sin curse through Joseph. And so there you have a, from, from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, all the way through to here, validation of the virgin conception of Christ. Another little detail here. Little grammatical thing. The word, the word Joseph and the husband, and the word husband nouns are both in the masculine gender. Mary is in a feminine gender. And that little word of whom, it's just a little indefinite pronoun. Number one, it's singular. Of whom? Generally, your parents, you would talk about them plural, right? My parents are, but it doesn't, that is singular. Of whom? And it's, the referent is Mary, not Joseph. It's also feminine, okay? It's only reference to her, not Joseph. Just just a little detail. And then, of course, Matthew goes on and explains further um, of the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. So even though the curse was on that line, God knew exactly what he was doing, and it demanded the virgin conception of Christ, okay? In fulfillment of the promise, part of which is there, at the bottom, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness. Where? In the land. That's again, Jeremiah 33. 
in that prophecy that has all the condemnation, there's these repeated promises that even though there will be cursing, even though there will be chastening, even though you will be in captivity in the land, I still will fulfill my promises through Abraham and bring you back to the land and bless you with a, with a righteous branch to sit on the throne of David. And that's exactly what he did. Do you have any thoughts or comments from what we've just seen from Haggai? Well, how about some practical principles from page 12? See, I'm not going to ask you any more questions. The highest priority for the believer in Yahweh is to worship him. We saw that. Number two, Yahweh told the returned Israelites to consider your ways multiple times. Think deeply about your life and about how you're living. For the Christian, if considering our ways reveals sin in our lives, we are to confess it, turn from it in repentance, and obey God's revealed will in Scripture. Number three, though it is an ancient principle, disobedience to God's revealed word still yields God's judgment, chastening, and it could be a range of things. Doesn't You're not necessarily you know, going to burst into flames, right? It could just be that life doesn't go like it should. They didn't get enough, quite as much crops as they thought in the land. They should have been blessed in the land, and yet they didn't get what they quite as much. So it sort of could be arranged. God does exercise the right to actually terminate someone's life, however, right? Clearly he did that with uh, Belshazzar, the knight of the hand writing on the wall. And also, obedience to God's revealed word still yields God's blessings. Yeah. And when we are chastened for disobedience, that's our fault. But when God blesses us for obedience, do we get a trophy? No, we still give God the glory for that, right? That's him working in us to produce that obedience. Well, the number four, dwelling on past glory may hinder present work. Remember the old guys, the ancient guys? That's not big enough. That's not good enough. And from uh, a prof of a generation or two couple generations ago, Prof Hendricks, comparison is carnal. It's always good to remember that. Comparison is carnal. Particularly, and I think primarily he was talking about if we compare ourselves with other people. You know, comparison is carnal. That should put a big bucket of cold water on our trying to compare ourselves with other people. Unless it's Jesus Christ, right? Number five, holiness does not rub off, but defilement does. Six, there you go. Good application of it, yeah. I mean, we <laughs> that whole principle, I mean, for a year and a half now, we've been dealing with a pandemic, you know. Health, health can't be communicated. I can't go someplace and get, get health. I can get a virus in a lot of different ways. That's communicable, but uh, health is not. Well, then number number uh, six, God has fulfilled his promises in the past and is currently fulfilling his, his promises in the present. We can trust him to fulfill all of his promises concerning the future in his time. And again, a reminder from Haggai when he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. And there's other passages in Scripture where he says that. We can take him at his word. The integrity of God is at stake. When When he says, I will, then we can take him at his word that he will. And number seven, perhaps the most important one, 
Jesus Christ will return to this earth. He will judge the nations. He will rule on the Davidic throne. He will bring peace and perfect justice to this planet. You like the idea of justice? Kind of a in thing now, you know? Hey, hey, ho, ho. If it's not just, then I won't go, right? You got a sign? Get your sign out, you know? What do we want? Justice. When do we want it now? Really? Are you sure you want? I hear that. I just, I, I almost cringe, you know? I want to get in my car and make sure I'm 100 miles away. There will be justice, you know? Paul asked that question in Romans, a rhetorical question. Is there injustice with God? May it never be, he says. No, every sin will be dealt with, past, present, future. In God's economy, there will be justice. But here's what really counts. If you have never trusted him, turn from your sins in repentance and trust him for salvation. That would be the application, right? Everything else, academic, if you're not saved. God wants to do the first work, the internal spiritual reality, before he does anything else. So that would be the application for you if you've never trusted Christ. Turn from your sins. Make a rational act of the will. Turn from your sin and repentance and trust him for salvation. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.